Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I want to start this week's podcast by letting listeners in on a little secret. Letting listeners behind the curtain. You know we like to do that here. We like to make listeners feel like they're a part of the show. Of course. You could argue we spent an entire episode doing that last week. Which we was did. really enjoyable, by the way. That was that was one of the more fun episodes I've I, I think we've done in a while, in part because it had very little to do with the acrimonious labor landscape in baseball. We could it put all that to side to the side and just talk vibes, feels. I did have a lot of fun recording that podcast, but are you trying to say that you don't actually enjoy making a show with me every week and you want to see other people? <laughs> Bobby, I, it's not you, it's me. I'm oh, it's serious. <laughs> well, it's not you, it's me, it's Scott Boris, who is really the, the icon that I think we need to complete this trifecta. You're leaving me to do a podcast with Scott Boris. Uh no, I was going to let listeners in on the fact that we almost missed this recording here because you were so busy filming your 15-minute short film about why jerseys are better than jerseys. And we right. almost just completely missed our recording window because of it. Yeah. But you stepped all over the joke, so it's over now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Weirdly, my short film also featured Dylan O'Brien. Oh. I had, a, I had a weird scheduling uh, mishap there, but he was able to make it work. It's like avant-garde. There's no sound, no dialogue. He just switches, but he's standing in front of a mirror. Maybe three mirrors, like one in front of him, one to the right, one to the left. Mm -hmm. Just trying on different jerseys and jerseys and seeing what looks better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dylan O'Brien could play you in a movie. Yes. Is, is there an actor that you feel like could capture your essence really well? Like if, if someone was writing a movie about you or this podcast or whatever... Who would you want to portray you? Who would I want to per portray me? Or like, is there somebody I don't, that people I don't know that I'd ever want to be should... portrayed any, anyhow, anywhere? <laughs> I mean, what I will say, and this oh, is maybe the, the, bad, the bad time to bring this up, but when some people meet me, they say, hey, you know who you remind me of is Jake Gyllenhaal. Wow. And that's a real bad beat for me these days. Wow. When is Prince of Persia 2 coming out? <laughs> I don't think that I look like this person, but I would. I think that Logan Lerman, who's in Perks of Being a Wallflower, and he's going to be in the new Percy Jackson TV series, I mm -hmm. feel like he could really capture my sad boy energy. Right. But he could also play you too. So it's just another example of how similar we are. <laughs> right. I mean, that has more to do with the personality than it does anything else like i i think dylan o'brien kind of looks like you if he grew his hair out or if you buzzed your hair you'd need to be able to grow a little bit more of a beard though yes i would yeah that's me too though it's hard it's hard that's okay it's a work in progress <laughs> <laughs> oh this podcast intro is worse than a work in progress let's just get on to the rest of the show alex we're going to talk about uh some back and forths in labor negotiations between the mlbpa and major league baseball 
We're going to answer a couple questions that we had left over from last week. We'll, of course, get into the man, the myth, the legend, Scott Boris's quotes at the GM meetings. But first, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Paisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, the December 1st deadline for the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement that governs Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association, it's coming up. It's coming up fast. Fast approaches. It is two and a half weeks away. And that means that the speed with which these negotiations and back and forths and proposals are coming in is increasing. And so, and since we last recorded a normal episode, uh, I will leave the 200th episode mailbag out of that because we didn't really want to talk about the nitty gritty of labor proposals on that podcast. We were having a fun time. And again, like Alex said, we we did really have a lot of fun recording that episode. Thank you so much to everybody who wrote in questions. I know I said this multiple times last week, but if we didn't answer your question, we do have it in a document somewhere and we're going to trickle some of those questions out spaced out over the off season because we might need stuff to talk about when it's just radio silence on baseball labor negotiations. So we have a few questions saved up either because they we ran out of time or because they would have required longer uh, answers or more research. So we will get to the remaining questions throughout this offseason. But that brings me back to negotiations. Um, we have had a union proposal and an MOB proposal that I want to discuss with you, Alex. Really quickly in the union proposal, we don't know that much more. We certainly don't know more than we really knew from the last time they proposed something. Uh, this is from an Evan Drellich article a little over a week ago, maybe like a week and a half ago. Uh, he writes, as previously reported, the union's first proposal would have allowed players to become eligible for arbitration after two years instead of three. The union in May also proposed a change to draft order, increases in the minimum salary raises to the CBT threshold, changes to revenue sharing between clubs, changes to the way service time is calculated, and bonuses for players who have yet to reach arbitration. So we don't know much more than that in this round coming from the union side, uh, except for broad strokes. We know that they want to address service time. We know that they want to address getting money to younger players as they start to get called up and have a bigger impact earlier. Which is, which is not new. This is something we, we know that the union is agitating for, given the, you know, the discussions around this over the, over the last few years. Right, and since Chris, basically since Chris Bryant's grievance, we've known that this was going to be the thing that they were going to focus on. Yeah. And you didn't have to be an insider to understand that. I think the more interesting thing that we can talk about and maybe kind of poke fun at a little bit was the MLB response to these proposals, which the large headline from this was that Major League Baseball proposed that instead of salary arbitration as it's currently constructed, which you know we've alluded to and we've said that we're going to do a, a longer episode about, but salary arbitration is after your third year of service, you are eligible for arbitration and you can propose what you think that you should make and the team can propose what they think that you should make. And if the numbers, if you can't agree on a number, then you go to arbitration with a allegedly independent arbitrator and they decide which salary number you end up getting paid. The one that you said or the one that the team said. MLB wants to do away with that. Great, Alex. Great. No yeah. more arbitration. Arbitration is a, a psychologically manipulative tactic that teams have that they can make players feel like they are lesser than. Yeah. Um I mean I it, it's interesting because arbitration is an an incredibly imperfect system, right? 
as we've noted. And also, it is a an arena in which the side of the owners, the side of the teams, have to give up a little bit of control, right? right. They are not... They do not have all of the leverage in those negotiations, right? There's a third party in there. So it's interesting that they'd want to do away with that. Right. Bobby, will, will you tell me more about what it is that they'd like to replace it with? Well, what they'd like to replace it with is this, this trickled out in stages. At first, we heard from some reporters who had gotten wind of this, that it was going to be an algorithm that was going to determine what players were worth. And an algorithm which, makes which it seem good. like... We love algorithms. <laughs> algorithms are working so well in the rest of society that MLB <laughs> was just like, more algorithms. Algorithms. And then we quickly found out from Evan Drellich, who is very plugged in here, as you can tell by the fact that we keep referencing articles that he's written. But Evan Drellich and Ken Rosenthal, um, they quickly reported that that algorithm was actually just MLB wants to use Fangraph's war to determine how much players would be paid in years three through six of team control. So I saw Craig Goldstein pointing this out right away. This would do nothing to address when you're actually getting paid the least, when you're under complete team control in years one through through three of your career in the majors. This would only address years three through six. So all of that background, your first response to when you saw that they wanted to use Fanagraph's war to determine how much you would be paid instead of arbitration. Honestly, it was like, this was the best you came up with and no shade to owners who are you you gotta hand it to them very very good at manipulating player salaries and gaming the system to their best advantage and when i heard that the latest proposal was this number times another number is your salary I thought, man, I thought you would have worked harder on something. This sounds like, you know, one of those like very first meeting, they've got the whiteboard up. <laughs> They're like, no bad ideas. No yeah. bad yeah. ideas. What do, what do we say? And they exhausted all the other options and they landed on, well, what if we multiply a player's fan graphs war by a set number, and that will be their salary in arbitration, right? So in the in the first year of arbitration, they will multiply their fangraphs war by 580,000. For the second year, that goes up to 770,000. For the third year, that jumps up to 910,000. And it's really just like... Which is not the cost of a win in the open market, by the way. Abs- it's like absolutely to, not. The cost of a win in the open I don't even remember what it is, but it's like millions. It's like 5 million or 6 million or something. Right. This is also not a number that's necessarily expected to change year over year, depending on how much the league is making. It's right. just a number that the league feels comfortable with and says, we don't think this player is going to be over... It's the league saying, we don't think this player is, as a result of this proposal, going to be raking in more money than they should be raking in, right? We feel confident that if a player is posting for war, sure, I'll pay them $4 million (laughs) because that's how that works. I loved the way that they, this is such a common labor tactic, uh, or this is such a common anti-labor tactic. 
I loved the way that they sort of weaponize the complaints of the pro player side, the complaints of the union side, and try to make it seem like the solution that they came up with in this whiteboard brainstorming session is actually is actually the perfect solution, Alex. It's the perfect solution for the problems that you have. There's this line in uh, the the Drellich piece that says, MLB sees its proposal as, in part, a way to do away with the acrimony of the arbitration process, which can be uncomfortable for clubs and players alike, and as a way for younger players to be paid more, one of the union's stated goals. Sorry, did he say it's uncomfortable for clubs? I'd like to know what executives are made uncomfortable by the arbitration process. Well, it's all. It's also like... This player's asking for $20,000 too much for me, and that's making me squirm. Right. Who made it uncomfortable to begin with? Was it the players who were asking to be paid like one fiftieth of their market value? Please, sir, may I please make one fiftieth of my market value? Or was it the teams that come in there with a dossier about when the players skip practice when they are 15 years old in high school and how that means that they shouldn't actually make an extra $51,000 a year from a club that's making $10 billion based on their services? I get that. That's tough for both sides. It's, I, it's hard it's for both sides. It's tough to come in there and dig through a player's personal life because like that right. carries emotional C- weight. Citing their tweets. Yeah. C- citing their weight citing their personal lives it's just very it's very it's very hard it's not it's not easy to depress a player's salary and frankly i think more people should think of the the billionaires on the other side of the table right private investigators aren't cheap alex (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's an extremely bizarre proposal that you know i i I think on its face to a lot of people sounds somewhat reasonable, right? You say players should be paid to some extent based on how they are performing, how they have performed over the course of their career. If we just multiply this one number that sums up their whole career by another number that we think reflects the market value, that works, right? Then every player is being paid based off the same variable and it's up to them on on how well they can perform like you said that ignores the 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 first three seasons of their career in which many players are arguably their most productive and getting paid the league minimum and getting paid the league minimum which you know i gotta give credit to mlb they did propose that they'd bump it like 100k which is good they recognize that there's a problem there. They're out there trying to cover for inflation. Probably, no. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not they, trying they, to cover for inflation, this proposal, <laughs> which... <laughs> yes. I don't know. The, the, idea that, the idea that there is a proposal to replace arbitration with the system that still does not take into account the league's overall economic position... Yeah, the the viability of their business is a non-starter, and I, this has been reflected in the reporting, right? The the quote unquote sources that have come back on the players' side of these things have said this is uh, vaguely speaking a joke. Specifically speaking, Albert Pujols <laughs> has a better chance of leading the majors in stolen bases. An agent said in response, "Yes." Uh, 
No, your your point is extremely well taken, though, because the union is striving towards making this a free market. They mm-hmm. don't want they don't want a 50-50 revenue split. They never have because they want the market to be free for each individual player to negotiate. So are you actually trying to replace the old system with something that is closer to what the union is asking for? Or just are you just using some of their talking points to try to soften public opinion about this? I think it's the latter because this does not this is the exact opposite of a free market. Guys cannot negotiate what they're for, what they're worth. They cannot come with this is actually further away from what the union wants than arbitration is. For all of its flaws and all of its limits, arbitration at least has two sides coming with what they feel like the person deserves. Now both sides have to be somewhat reasonable and i think that the player side usually gets screwed in that case because because of all of because of a lot of regressive things about arbitration and how much you can actually ask for um based on what stats you have to present to these neutral arbitrators who don't actually know that much about baseball but boiling it down to one single number by the way one single number that people who created it will tell you is not meant to be used like incredibly imperfect really useful and has a lot of flaws. Really useful to talk about in broad do. strokes, right? Yeah. But not as useful to talk about what a specific guy means to a specific team. Because if, if you're asking as a, as a team, if you're asking a player to do something that they're not that good at for a season, to learn how to play left field, their war is going to suffer. But why should their salary suffer? Because you played them out of position. There is, mm-hmm. This is ripe with opportunity to exploit from the team side to yeah. take at bats away to put guys in positions that they're not used to to tell them not to steal because that might help their war to tell them to have a more aggressive plate approach because if you walk more it'll help your war because you get on base more like there are so many ways that teams could try to game this even unintentionally that would ultimately end up being extremely anti-player Relievers, notoriously undervalued by war. You want to know what we just saw in the last month in the playoffs and in the last few years in the playoffs? You want to know the players who are quite valuable? Relievers. Relievers, very, very valuable to teams. And that's reflected on the market when you see free agent relievers getting $10-15 million a year even if you're just a setup man, that's an incredibly valuable role to play that oftentimes is not reflected in a player's war because they only accumulate 50, 60, 70 innings a year. And war is in a, you know, is a cumulative stat. So how do you account for that? Right. And you chalk it up to, to an Excel formula? How do you account for the fact that like, if you're a reliever or you're a pitcher, and a team just rides you really hard for year four, blows you out for year five, then you get nothing for year five, and you get nothing for year six. The years that you're ostensibly supposed to be making more under this proposal, you're making nothing because you put up no war. Like there are a million questions that this opens up, and it just doesn't seem like they cared about the questions. Like they, it seems like a really lazy attempt to me at trying to appease the players union and trying to appease the wider baseball community by being like we're forward thinking we're looking at war 
without ever really thinking about what that would mean in practice. Yeah, and it goes without saying that anything that the owners propose, and for that matter, anything that the players propose, is worth being somewhat skeptical about because, and, and especially with the way it's reported, because it's usually reported directly from the impacted party's mouth, right? And given that the owners are oftentimes the, the ones with the upper hand in economic negotiations, the notion that they would put something forth that is a rational proposal to fix MOB's economic system feels uh, somewhat unsavory. I to to accept this idea is to accept the notion that the owners are acting in in good faith and in the interests of the players. Which again, th- this is a system that the owners that as it currently exists, owners don't have complete control over. So it's in their benefit to replace it with something that you can much more easily calculate the results of. Yeah. Right. Because then they don't have to invest in all of the stuff that we joked about at the beginning of the segment that comes with arbitration, which is like right. lawyers who go to the courts and tell the arbitrator why they shouldn't make more money. Yeah. And like, you know, research assistants who compile a list of the player's body fat percentage at different points throughout the first three years of their career and why that means that they weren't trying hard enough. Like all of these other things that, you know, all of these arbitration horror stories. And I guess where we'll end with this because it's maybe not worth getting too much further into the weeds on something that is a non-starter to begin with and just seems like a... It just seems like a little bit of like a hot potato move within negotiations here. Like, oh you guys sent us back this proposal. We're just going to give it right back to you. Now, mm-hmm. like we don't actually expect this to pass before December 1st. Of course, we're, we're yeah. not taking this all that seriously in the time that we should be taking it the most seriously, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but this comes from John Becker, who's a roster resources assistant at Fangraphs. And he said, he made a really good point about, about all war, whether it's Fangraphs war or not. He says, what I would hate is a stat that is public and inherently inexact being used to underpay players. 3.3 war is essentially the same as 3.2. Players would not be paid as such. I think that's a really good point because fan graphs and all, all sabermetric sites that have their own version of wins above replacement, they go back and they update these numbers. Mm-hmm. Like based on... They acknowledge their imperfections. Right. They acknowledge their imperfections. They are, they are living breathing numbers that they go back and change based on different I don't even know what they change it on based on different trends in the league over longer periods of time like I don't actually know what goes into the formula of war but I do know that if you go back and look at older players who are long since dead their war changes so how are you going to account for that as a league when this is the actual money that you're putting into a player's bank account are you going to go back and give them a bonus are you going to go back and debit money from them? Right. Posthumous <laughs> bonuses. Yeah. Like what? That's it's unserious. It's I mean, that's the word that like we keep coming back to. But like they, they know that this is not going to be agreed on anywhere close to this. Right. Now, if you want to talk about if you want to talk about we can factor in war in in arbitration, because, you know, it's been talked about a lot how things like RBIs, things like 
home runs are very valued in arbitration. And that's not really exactly how players are thinking of the best versions of themselves anymore. But that's not what really this seems like. This seems more like a one-stop shop. This is the number. And that just doesn't seem beneficial to really either side, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's worth noting that neither side's proposal that, of which the details were, were leaked out in the last couple of weeks were much different from what we've heard in the past, which I think underscores the inevitability that we're barreling bit that we are barreling towards of a, a lockout, right? The league's most recent proposal differed very little compared to the last one, right? They are still advocating for two years to reach arbitration instead of three. You listed off the whole uh, laundry list of, of asks that they have at the beginning of this conversation. And frankly, that's a good thing because they are sticking to their guns, right? And not caving to these inherently bad faith demands that the ownership is putting forward. And it also means we're headed towards a, a work stoppage. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's becoming more and more clear by the day. And it's, I think, far less dramatic than I think some people would have it seen, right? Because a lot of it is, is more paperwork and backroom deals than it is something that's going to be like reflected in the day-to-day goings-on of the game, right? As fans, we may not actually witness a lot of this stuff. But as we've talked about before, there is a lot at stake here. And there's incentives for on either side of the table to come to a a somewhat swift agreement. So, well... I mean, the last thing I'll say on that, and then we could take a quick break and come back and talk about Boris, is I was really surprised to see Jeff Passan tweeting about how Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon's market is heating up and how it's becoming increasingly likely that they will sign before December 1st. It's probably a fool's errand to make like overarching judgments about where negotiations are at because of that. But I think that you and I and most people who thought about free agency in this way would have assumed that most guys would want to wait until after the CBA so that they can so that they can understand the terms with which the terms that are available to them in a league-wide market signing the next deal that they sign or signing the biggest deal that they sign. Yeah. I mean just just to give like a singular a single example of why this sort of alarms me is because what if these guys are like starting to catch wind of the fact that the that there might be a salary floor and therefore the competitive balance tax might be lowered. And so right. their larger individual average annual value of salary means more to teams than it would have had they signed before the CBA expired. Like all of those things, I'm like, is this a bad sign? I don't right. really know. It's, does it mean nothing? I don't really know. Is it just that these guys know where they want to go and the teams are interested? So why wait? Why let teams talk themselves out of a big contract over the course of the next three months? It could be nothing. But it is, if not informative, at least interesting. 
that two of yeah. the guys who are going to sign the biggest deals are going to do it before they know anything about what the CBA is. Right. Well, and it's interesting that teams would be interested in entertaining that before knowing anything about what their potential payrolls might look like in 2022 and beyond. I mean, I think players have a decent incentive to sign relatively quickly because I don't necessarily anticipate the CBA to move things backwards as far as player compensation. Obviously, I mean, we know that ownership would would like to rein things in, but I th- we know how militant the the union has been and I don't think I don't think they're going to stand for anything that allows players to make less than the, than what they've made in years past and so I think players should be chomping at the at the bit to sign right now and like you said do teams are, are teams actually interested in in making these signings right now is it financially prudent for them to do this before knowing what the CBA looks like knowing what luxury tax limits look like and such I mean, I guess it just might be if you really want the guy and they really want to come to you, why let the next three months of shit slinging affect your individual negotiation when you could just ensure that you have the guy? Right. So it'll be interesting. And it kind of really depends on what teams they go to. Because if it, they go to a team that's nowhere near the luxury tax to begin with, then why, they wouldn't care anyway about yeah. whether the luxury tax goes slightly down or slightly up. It won't make too much of a difference to them. Um. So yeah, I it, it might be a moot point come like three weeks from now. Right. I mean, this is all like prognosticating. Like we have zero intel on what either of these parties are are thinking. But the fact that we're getting any of this at all when we, I think, expected largely radio silence is certainly telling. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break. Come back. Talk Scott Boris. Answer a couple questions and then get out of here. All right, we're not going to do three up, three down, Alex, because it's the off season and not as much happens. So three up, three down mm-hmm. will make its triumphant return, I guess, around spring training, maybe mid-February. We'll see. Right. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't put a date on that. Yeah. But, uh, but it'll, it'll return around the time that baseball returns. Yes, exactly. Uh, but what we are going to do is we're going to talk about the fact that Scott Boris, we're not going to talk about all the analogies that he made because that has been, that's well-trodden ground in the uh, in the wider world of podcasts and media, um, effectively wild has been on that corner for like eight years. So mm-hmm. we're not going to add anything to the discourse that they aren't already covering. But we are going to talk about the fact that he said Scott Boris said only seventeen teams at the most are currently trying to win in twenty twenty two. Alex, can you think of seventeen teams that are really trying their <laughs> hardest to win? Scott, you were the chosen one. You were supposed to bring balance to the system. To the labor landscape. <laughs> Not destroy it. Yeah, uh, that's being very generous, Scott, about the amount of teams. And, and his point stands, which the point he's trying to make is not enough teams are trying to compete. And I think he is still overestimating the amount of teams that are trying to compete. And I'm sure to a certain extent, he feels a need to 
treads somewhat lightly because I'm sure he has to maintain relationships with a lot of these teams, and he doesn't want to burn bridges by saying there are only five teams trying to con- trying to compete here, because you will have plenty of GMs saying, "Seriously, you don't you don't believe in us? Oh, you don't next time in you what come, we're doing? next time you come to me trying to get two hundred million dollars, I'll say, nope, sorry, I'm not trying to compete and hang up the phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's interesting though, like this this last round of winter meetings and sort of a conversation, an ongoing conversation that we've been having and joking about Scott Boris being a labor legend because he gets his players paid the absolute maximum amount of money is do owners really hate Scott Boris that much is my question because, or is he more so in a roundabout way kind of beneficial to them because they know that they have to pay his clients top dollar but everybody who he does not represent, who's in that sort of middle tier, they can completely underpay. And those people make up the majority of rosters. So is it like they sacrifice, they let Scott Boris bluster, they let him say that only 17 teams are competing because he's Scott Boris, and then everyone else falls into line underneath that. He's like planned opposition for them. He's he's the built-in force that they know that they're going to have to deal with and then everybody else they can kind of squash down underneath that (laughs) right well and he carries a a large amount of influence right and i mean five out of eight of the the union's executive subcommittee which is made up of players are boris clients so the the league recognizes the sway that he has, and I I cannot imagine that they think he is a rogue, radical, you know, talking out of left field. To an extent, the the boundaries of the playing field have been set, right? And and Scott Boris knows his role, which is to be the the one who blusters on one side and throws metaphors i mean left and right like no other and frankly are i i think getting a little lazy he could yeah. he could use some work i i need to understand more like does he have like a tight 15 minutes like these all these comparisons were they were coming out in streams like right people were updating these threads of different scott boris comparisons and the hunt for october with chris brown like all these things <laughs> Is he just like up there trying knock knock jokes? Right. Is this, did this come in like a press conference? Right. He's got ten minutes <laughs> to to give his stand up routine, and boy, does he make it worth it. <laughs> I don't know, man. But certainly, you make a good point in noting that. Sure, it's useful for him to point out the shortcomings in the league's free agency market or the the broader financial system whatever but a lot of these quotes mean very little because what he's more interested in is advocating for his clients which are again among the league's biggest stars so right. he may have have less vested interest in the quote unquote middle class of baseball players which are most of the baseball not players. coincident, not coincidentally, most of the baseball players and most of the players who get squeezed in the way that free agency has shifted over the last few years. He's not really like 
a pro-union force. I mean, some of the stuff that he does ends up having sway within the union, but like he exists on a kind of third rail. And and then it's like, it's kind of every time the GM meetings roll around and it's like the Scott Boris show, I'm like, okay, maybe we could just tone it back a little bit. This is one perspective advocating on behalf of a very specific class of player. And it's good. And like he should get the absolute maximum dollar that teams are willing to give for every single one of his clients. But that doesn't trickle down. Not to make Scott Boris sound like Ronald Reagan, but that doesn't trickle down to the rest of the player pool. Right. It's advantageous for him to negotiate the freest of markets. Yes. Because that will benefit his clients and in turn benefit him. But it has never been the top dollar players that have seen issues with free agency. Right. Bryce Harper got paid. Manny Machado got paid, right? These players have always gotten top dollar because teams are, are I think, recognize that to a certain extent. Say you're a star, your value goes beyond, you know, your war. <laughs> <laughs> just to use one status as an example. Just as an example. And we'll throw $300 million at you because you're worth it. You put butts in seats as the old adage goes and 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 no one is no one is concerned about whether Garrett Cole is is making 25 or 28 million on his year to year contract and the stratification of the highest and lowest earners is what allows teams to underpay the largest majority of the bell curve in the middle there in terms of like player value and and player ability because like the more they're paying up top, the higher the overall payroll is and the less that they're... And we know that teams are not willing to go up to that competitive balance tax. And so they just reallocate it to all the Scott Boris clients. And it's like, okay, well, then everybody else is still unable to like... Still unable to make much beyond their arbitration years. Like you're then working for like short contracts for five to eight million dollars per year. Um, so I don't know. It just... It just made me think about it because I'm wondering how much Scott Boris thinks about the larger forces of him saying that 17 teams compete. Because 17 teams might offer Bryce Harper a contract. 17 teams might have picked up the phone when he called about where Bryce Harper might want to go. But I don't think that 17 teams would be willing to sign Bryce Harper and then also turn around and sign like a third starter for 15 million a year. You know what I mean? And that is the larger problem when it comes to when it comes to team behavior in the quote unquote free market. And that's what we're seeing with your team right now with the A's. We're seeing we're seeing the fire sale of players that are below that tier of stars. We're seeing different teams be uninterested in paying what it costs to maintain and build a core of very good players but not superstar players because those guys are no longer pre-arb they're no longer arb they're actually going to go to the market and make something close to what their market value is and that is the bigger problem in terms of how it trickles down towards fans that is the bigger problem with that grinds our gears every week is teams just 
punting on competitiveness. And it's not just because that those teams don't want to offer $35 million to Mookie Betts. It's because those guys want to trade away Chris Bassett and Frankie Montas and Mark Canna and and just move on and, and recycle it. Yeah, Boris, one of the positions that he that he took at this winter meetings was that the Braves should not have been and and he made it clear that this was not to, to no fault of the Braves, but they shouldn't have been so easily able to upgrade their outfield by simply picking off the players that other teams were were no longer interested in that that other teams had assessed were no longer valuable to them right and 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 we're making the assessment that that it's it makes more sense to trade them for a prospect or for cash or whatever it may be and that's the point that i think his comment about you know 17 teams or whatever trying to compete whatever it is kind of obscures is that there is a a huge swath of teams in the middle who are are not not trying to compete right they're not actively tearing down the whole time they're just reshuffling every couple of years and that's i think as bad for the sport <laughs> as it is very a, a team <laughs> Very loaded, I think, thrown in there in the middle of that I sentence. I think. <laughs> I think, as a lifelong fan of the Oakland right. Athletics. Not that I have a vested interest in any of this. But, like, you know, just in terms of when you think about fan bases, you know, the retention of fans and fostering goodwill in a community, that's just as harmful as a team trying to tear down and maybe even more harmful right because you can look at the what the Orioles are doing which is a pretty blatant tear down and say damn that team had a lot of promise but a lot of their fans also have a lot of optimism about what's coming down the road because they have been able to turn this quote unquote tear down into some young stars that do actually set up a future for them, right? right? And and there are a lot of teams that would much rather have one foot in the door and one foot out and say, we're not going to set us up to have a huge future, but we can't promise anything this year either. Right, because it's a really interesting question, though, whether Orioles fans will feel like it was worth it if one of two things does not happen. The first thing being they win a World Series and the second thing being they actually retain this new core that they've developed via tanking for the last five mm-hmm. years. Yeah. You don't have to do both of those things. I, I would argue that you don't need to do the first thing. You don't need to necessarily win a World right. Series to show that this was a productive way of building a baseball team. We know that the playoffs are a crapshoot. Exactly. The Dodgers, the Dodgers spent $300 million and got a ring. And the fact that they lost a year prior or a year afterwards does not mean that anything they did was a failure. Right. But but I'm saying you don't have to do both of those things. Yeah. You do have if you're not going to retain the core, you do have to at least win a World Series. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you have to win one. Because otherwise then it was actually for nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the only thing that keeps the Cubs fan base afloat. 
that keeps the Astros fan base afloat is they actually got to see their team win. But let me know how Cleveland fans are feeling right now because they came up short and then they didn't retain that core that they had developed. Now, they didn't do a full teardown tank, but they're doing this half in and half out thing that you're talking about. Cleveland's one of these teams that is in this perpetual state of half in and half out. Cincinnati is trying to be that. The A's have been that since Moneyball. And there have been different instances where they have gone fully in. What's the team that you loved the most? The team that went fully in, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that 2012-13-14 team, right? God, I I will rant for days about how they traded Yo Ennis Espedes for John Lester at the deadline because that shit ripped my heart out. But what it meant was them saying, we think this is our best shot. And at the very least, I have to give them credit for that rather than just kind of resting on their laurels of hanging around and being a 90-win team. Um, while we're talking about the A's, Alex, I just yeah. ha- I have to read you a tweet from, do, John, do from you? John Heyman. I have to. I don't know that you have to read I a simply tweet from am John compelled Heyman. to read you a tweet from John Heyman. GM David Force of the cash-strapped A's. Hmm. Need I repeat that for you? Cash-strapped A's. Hang on, I'm doing some research here real quick. Okay, Keep do, talking. Independent, <laughs> independently researching while I'm reading this tweet from John Heyman. Said right. they are willing to listen on everyone. Everyone. They were clearly willing to listen on their manager who they gave away without getting anything in return, even though he was under right. contract. They listened. Mm-hmm. They just didn't say anything back. This is the cycle for the A's. We have to listen and be open to whatever comes out of this. This is our lot in Oakland until it's not. <laughs> A few things jump out to me there. Very, <laughs> yeah, dude. Very interesting that the A's are cash-strapped and this is their lot in Oakland. But before I even say that, John Heyman is just straight-up state media. I know he actually works for MLB, but to print this unexamined quote from a GM at the GM meetings, it's like, this is what the GM meetings exist for. Mm-hmm. To to like spin propaganda like this. If a reporter is just going to tweet this and then not say anything else after that, the the entire endeavor solely exists to bend fan public fan opinion to their will. Right. It's not about breaking actual news at this point. It's about crafting a a narrative a, a, of which a lot of these national reporters are useful fools. Yes. Extremely useful fool. <laughs> uh, back to back to David Force. Man, that guy just has to come out and eat shit a lot, huh? Mm. Because we know Billy Bean's not going to do it. He's graduated beyond the shit-eating days of his youth. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> David Force just has to come out and be like, we have no money. And everybody has to be like, yes, you do. And also your owner is worth $3.5 billion and his net worth has gone up, as has the franchise value, as you're currently trying to publicly extort a city council so that you can get a new stadium built and if not then you're going to move to Las Vegas to make even more money and probably open a casino in center field and make even more money on top of that but please continue about how you can't sign any players this is a good team they've won like 90 plus games like five out of the last six years this team is good and they're listening on everyone right I love when teams come out and say no, we don't have a we don't have like a goal. We're not trying to get anywhere with this. But come and take a look at what we have to offer. Yeah. You know? We're 
we don't have weak points that we're trying to upgrade and we're willing to listen on our stars in order to upgrade those weak points. It's, well, the cycle continues. So 29 teams, you have your picking of which A's player you'd like to trade for. And we'll make it easy for you because that's the name of the game. Moneyball effectively turned the A's into a used car lot. And a lot of people really thought that that was cool. Like a lot of people thought that that was next level. And now we're 20 years removed from that. And it's still a used car lot where at the end of the day, they got to sell all these players to make it go. Right. Well, no matter a- what, no matter what value they're going to get back, it's time to sell. It's at the end of the month. We got to make our, we got to make it's the end of our competitive cycle. It's the end of our three year window where we're allowed to spend more than $60 million on payroll. Everything must go sale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, to extend the metaphor to its very end, it is it is car salesmen. It is it is people who are car salesmen as their second job, right? Because they have income coming in from elsewhere, from plenty of other places. They're going to be fine at the end of the day. <laughs> They're landlords and car they don't salesmen. Need this. <laughs> <laughs> wow, tough beat. Well, I mean. John Fisher is not actually, a, I mean, he probably is a landlord of like 10 buildings, maybe. But it's not like his empire. His empire is fast fashion. <laughs> Destroying the environment. Right, right. And to like make logging. t-shirts for seventeen you know, ninety nine. Like, <laughs> logging? <laughs> so like old school. Like, it's just really that literally, I mean, so that literally easy. is what like his, no, his family so- was like embroiled in controversies because they were just clearing forests left and right right and then they also founded the gap (laughs) (laughs) on the back of child labor yeah like it's just gnarly easy to understand though at least we can point to that and we we understand it as opposed to gotta get rid of these used cars though right as opposed to the time that we spent 45 minutes trying to explain what a short squeeze was and how steve cohen loses or makes money that was way harder to explain to our listeners. I had to like go to a Reddit thread for that. Right, yeah. Investopedia.com <laughs> says. Alex was in the Robinhood app. Yeah. Live tracking GameStop stock. GameStop stock. I've, I've lost the thread at this point, but you know the, the A's are exhibit A of how teams have gamed this system. Yeah. And are continuing to take advantage of it, right? And and in the A's case and you know, in the, the Rays case as well, holding actual like public taxpayers and cities hostage over it, right? And saying we will not spend more money until you give us millions of dollars in tax breaks. You know what we should do? We should make a children's book. That explains how owners make their money. You know, like little pictures. Uh-huh. Talk about extorting public governments. Mm-hmm. Talk about trading little children's favorite baseball players for pennies you, on the dollar. If oh. you give an owner a subsidy, then he's <laughs> going to want a tax break. R is for racketeering. And if you give him a tax break, <laughs> he's going to want a $3 billion stadium. Rock around the clock. How to extort a city government in 24 hours. <laughs> uh, we have a couple listener questions to answer here at the end. And the first listener question, it's actually one that we got last week, um, even before these David Forrest quotes, but it comes from Zach. Uh, he's asking specifically about the A's and he's saying, 
if the A's completely blow it up just so John Fisher can save a couple bucks before he has to pay players to fill his new stadium, we can't keep giving him our money for a few years of replacement players, right? So if you acknowledge that that is true and you can't root for the A's anymore, that's your own personal journey to go on. But if you can't root for your own favorite team, where do you go? Do you root for the Padres because they're fun and and with Bob Melvin, they'll be even better? Do you go all in on the Angels hoping that they can bring Trout and Otani to the playoffs? Do you pick a totally random team on the other side of the country so there are no blackout restrictions like the Reds or the Twins. I'm stumped on this That has to be a consideration. (laughs) (laughs) He's really hitting all the tipping pitches points right here. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, yeah, what do you do, do, Alex? I'll let you answer this one because this is your conundrum as well. I mean, I don't don't have an answer for that. I'm wrestling with this day in and day out. And, And people have asked me this very directly and said, well, what what will you do if the A's move? Will you root for the people. Las Vegas I, I'm A's? People, I've asked you. You this. are people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really hard to divorce yourself from a fandom that has been inherent to your identity, so to speak, for you know the entirety of your life. Right? How do you say yeah, that this 2006 thing, A's poster is still up in your childhood bedroom? <laughs> it quite literally is. <laughs> Eric Chavez, Nick I, Swisher, I calendar. saw it with my own two human eyes. <laughs> I saw the calendar. It's poster sized. Yeah, that is a that's a relic right there. I but thought like, of you. I was doing a sporkle quiz the other day. Eric Chavez came up because it was. Uh-huh. Can you name every player since ni- the 1990 season who has won the Gold Glove and the Silver Slugger in the same season? Eric Chavez, bro. That's a- fucking right. A's 2000, I don't know, I forget what year. 2003, I think. Sounds right. So take I thought it would. Take your just word so, for it. Just so you know. I thought I'd tell you on, <laughs> on our baseball podcast here. He was very good. Yeah, he was really good. You know who else won it? Mets Eric Chavez, David Wright. <laughs> David Wright, yeah. Yep. Eric Chavez is David Wright if he does not get injured as much as he did. Which, I mean, David Wright got injured to his own extent, but Eric Chavez was somehow like more injured. Chavez than that. was like injured during his career. David Wright's career was cut short because of injury. Those are two different right. things. Ex- yeah, he was exactly. healthy for his whole career. It was just short, David Wright. Yes. Until the yeah. last year and a half. Right. Chavez had his prime years kind of carved out as a result of injuries. This is not a podcast about Eric Chavez, although it very well could be. And people, I would do that and would probably listen. have a more enjoyable time talking about that than the team I'm going to have to root for once the A's uh, skip town. But I think that this I think this illustrates why it's so hard to, to kick your team because you have like you're thinking about Eric Chavez on November right. 14th, 2021. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're yeah. talking with a friend for the world to hear about Eric Chavez. I frankly, the the first team that did come to mind was the San Diego Padres. It's an easy transition because the manager has bopped right over there. Shouts out, Bob Melvin. Obviously, I mean, we have waxed poetic. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. He looks like Walter White. That team is very good and fun to watch. And, and you know, I'm on board with that. Um, You know, a part of me thinks it's it's tough to switch uh, allegiances within your division 
Yeah. I I love the Angels, but could I be an Angels fan? I don't know. Nah. That's, could any of us? Here's why the Padres works perfectly. NL team, so you can still maintain your A's fandom, which I think mm-hmm. is key here. You right. won't you don't want to kill the fandom. Right, exactly. You, you maybe want to am... put it on life support, <laughs> put it in a medically <laughs> induced coma for a few years. Right. And then bring it back. And and then you put your main focus on a different team in a preferably different division, prefer like preferably NL versus yeah. AL. And Padres still on West Coast time. So you're used to watching West Coast baseball. Right. But as okay, this is I mean, this was not a part of Zach's question, but as an East Coast fan, as an East Coast resident watching a West Coast team, do I maybe say, hey, I'd like uh, to watch a team that maybe I'd be able to watch at a reasonable time of day. I don't know. You don't want that. Is this? You I mean, no, I don't. You want to be watching for, a baseball game I that starts at 1030. Watching a baseball game at 1 a.m., <laughs> you know. It's just personal preference. I mean, I imagine Zach is calling from Oakland. I don't know if that's true or not, but since he didn't say that he was living in a different part of town that he could, right. or a different part of the country that he could pick up that town's baseball team, I'm assuming that he's staying in Oakland, unlike mm-hmm. the a- athletics themselves. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the knives are out here. Yeah, yeah it's it's tough. Again, Zach, like I said, I don't have a good a good answer. I I am very drawn to individual players who just play exciting bit you know there's a little bit of like <laughs> i'm drawn to the players who play yeah, the players who play who who are good at baseball it's kind of fun there's a little bit of giddiness inside me of being like a free agent fan yeah right because i'm kind of like i get to wow. weigh my options now i don't have to like be born into some into a curse i can i can create a spreadsheet and multiply every team's number by another number and say yeah. this is this is where I think I'm gonna net out. Once again, your Mets GM is showing. Speaking of the Mets, you don't even have to worry about this. You're rooting for the Mets with me. Let's go. That's true. I I I do love the Mets. Season tickets 2022. Come on, get on board. Let's You're go. moving back here. Like wow, breaking news on the podcast. Wow, that, I have yeah, not was, said that, that publicly big. anywhere, but <laughs> we're just breaking <laughs> it on the podcast. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, you you won't have any time to be a free agent. The only thing you'll have time for is stressing about whether the Mets are going to re-sign Aaron Loop. Right. You're going to be checking out Taewon Walker's FIP at 1 a.m. Forget the A's. Jesus Christ. I'm already having like night sweats about yeah. this. Welcome, you know, like I have the club. I, this was a, pretty much a lateral move for me as far as <laughs> fandoms go. Maybe that not might even be generous. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. being generous. I mean, the, Mets, the Mets have made the playoffs four times in my life. Just made the playoffs. Right. <laughs> Let alone you done anything it, with that. Count it on one hand. <laughs> but they have made the World Series twice. So, you know, that's more than you can say for the A's. Uh, okay. Final question that we got this week, Alex. It is a voicemail. And it is, of course, about Red Taylor's version. Hey, it's Friday, November 12th, and I've been listening to Red all day, and I kept thinking, like, what was that podcast that I heard where someone was talking about the Fearless re-release? Like, I really want to hear what they think about this one. Finally remembered it's you guys. Please let us know all of your thoughts about this new album. Yeah, take care. This is so funny. Uh, mainly because, like, we're we're conditioning our listeners to think of us as Taylor Swift podcasters 
even right. though this podcast has actually nothing to do with Taylor Swift. Like it couldn't be further from Taylor Swift, the, one of the most mainstream musical artists making music right now. And we are a niche leftist baseball podcast. And yet the connection that was made was what was that podcast that was talking about the fearless re-release? I want to remember. I want to know how this person remembered that it was us. Like, what? <laughs> I guess maybe the 200th episode mailbag when we talk so much about Taylor Swift. I don't know. Right. But thank you for calling, and thank really, you for asking. Really dangerous, dangerous question because very open ended. What What are your thoughts on Red? Right. We're at I've the end of the podcast here. <laughs> we have five minutes maximum to talk about this, Alex. Five minutes. That's maximum to talk about this. But right. half of the length of the all too well Taylor's version. Ten Taylor's version, ten minute version. Right. Um so you and I were texting the second that this uh this album dropped on the old Spotify app, if you've heard of it. And I don't know, I don't wanna I don't wanna scoop you. What did you think? I it's red. Yep. All the all the songs are there. <laughs> That's you know and that's more. The, that was the first thing I more. noticed. Yep. <laughs> we again, as you noted, we don't have the time to do a a red retrospective or or really any deep dive into Taylor's archive. One day, you know, yeah. we will be in the throes of the lockout. And I think we'll be forced to do just a purely Taylor Swift uh, record. You're looking into a window where you can see January 21st, 2022. Nothing to talk about. (laughs) I mean, it's good. She sounds really good on it. Red is... uh, I think I'm not the first person to to suggest that Red is maybe slightly bloated in places. There are places where we could have kind of cut some fat. I don't think that diminishes any of the work that she's done. And in fact, even in those places where it felt a little excessive that, you know, the back half of the, of the album is, has a lot of slow jams as far as Taylor goes. She was able to even make some of those really compelling in this re-record. Yeah. So I don't know. I like, you know, Phoebe Bridgers on a Taylor Swift song? Are you fucking kidding me? You know, I was listening to that song today and uh, in the car with Phoebe, and it, it's remarkable. Phoebe, Phoebe, your partner, not Phoebe. <laughs> right, the, right, Brid- the, the Bridgers one. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, me and Phoebe Bridgers were driving around Los Angeles yeah. listening to a Phoebe Bridgers song. Yeah. Uh, no, I was listening to it, and I was remarking, we were both remarking about how natural the, the song felt with the two of them, and I was mm-hmm. like, to the to the point where Phoebe, my partner Phoebe, not Bridgers, right. uh, said, I, "I don't know how much I can believe that this song was really written in 2012." Right, <laughs> and I was like, "Well, maybe the lyrics were, but the the everything else about the song was changed. Everything else about the song was pasted onto what it would sound like with Phoebe Bridgers because yeah. it sounds perfect with the two of them on it. The other, um, the other from the Vault song, Alex, that really, really hit for me was "I Bet You Think About Me." Yeah. I don't know how that got left off the album. I mean, I do. It was like a victim of the country to pop agenda at the time where she was trying to make her transition known. And that song is a little too country to make it on the back half of that album. And it was maybe a little too explicit about her experience with Jake Gyllenhaal, where the rest of the album is a little bit more general in places, sometimes more explicit. But 
it's it's a fantastic song. Uh, the song that was most improved with Taylor Swift recording it at 32 instead of 22 for me was uh, Sad, Beautiful, Tragic. Yeah. I I like the song. I've always liked the song. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it was bad before. I'm just saying there's something like uh, nostalgic and wistful about hearing her sing it as an older person and like her voice is a little bit deeper. It's It's like a slightly different register and that song is like low and slow and kind of builds some feeling in your chest throughout it that I just felt like it hit a little harder this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can definitely tell that she put a lot into some of those ballads yeah. that maybe felt a little overwrought at the time. And she was able to give everything and more on on this go-round. Yeah. Which, again, maybe it doesn't end up justifying the length of the album, which <laughs> is still very long. 30 songs, 2 hours and 10 minutes. 30 mm-hmm. songs, two hours and 10 minutes. Should uh, we, I mean, I mean, should we spend a minute uh, talking about the, the 10 minute version of All yes, Too Well? We like, should. I have something that's going to sound like a take, but is actually, I actually really like it. I will start out by saying that. However, I wish it was eight, the eight minute version. And it doesn't sound as good because you're not like doubling the length. Okay. But I wish that some of those like awkward, verses that were added in the middle were not there i like the extended mm-hmm. version i i like the extended outro with the fade out i thought that that was sweet and sounded really good and i like the last verse that is added in but the ones in the middle are slightly cringe for me slightly cringe with the fuck the patriarchy thing on the keychain it's a little bit cringe so i wish it was eight minutes cut two minutes out of the middle <laughs> i largely am in the same camp where i loved the composition and the instrumentation of it. It's, I mean, it breathes a whole new life into the song. And I think it sounds like fall hits, hits in a very different way. Yes, exactly. And fits very well with the short film that she produced, right? Like it tracks <laughs> and directed quite, and produced and produced. And, yes, exactly. Uh, it tracks very well with that. You could say it almost tracks word for word uh, with the song <laughs> in places. Wow, yeah, this is I've, a film criticism podcast. This is this is everything but a baseball criticism podcast, really. At this at this point, at this hour of the night, yeah, it's good. I, it's I'll still probably end up spinning the original version the most, yeah, because I that's it's the best version. It's the best version. It's the more important version. You know what I would have loved to hear. The 10 minute all too well demo from 2012. Right. I am actually less interested because I think because we never heard this version at all, she was likely able to take much more in the way of creative liberties in how it was presented today. Right. So we really have no idea. Right. Uh, Right. The other Taylor version songs are pretty much note for note reproductions, which I mean, very good reasons for that. But I'm curious how different the one we heard on Friday was from the one that supposedly was, you know, you know existed in her original demo recordings. We're going to imagine that it was. No, we're going to, yeah. Like before we die, we're going to get that. <laughs> There's just too much at stake here. Uh huh. Scooter Braun will go bankrupt or something and he'll need the money. 
<laughs> we'll sell the original. God willing, well. he'll send the original. Maybe he'll send sell it to the pharma bro. Scooter Braun, who doesn't <laughs> even own the Taylor Swift uh, Masters anymore, like sold them off, I think, right. a couple years ago. <laughs> but he's still catching that heat, as he should, yeah. because he was as, the one who wouldn't sell them back to him. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. just let my pharma bro joke go unresponded <laughs> to. What <laughs> the hell? Come on. Martin Shkreli? Never, never in a million years Martin did I think Shkreli? Martin Shkreli was going to come up on this podcast. But again, off-season, lockout season, this is this is where we're at. Sorry, y'all. Okay, please call. Please continue calling into Tipping Pitches so that we can have fun conversations about stuff like Taylor Swift's Red, Taylor's version, all too well, 10-minute version, Taylor's version, parentheses, from the vault. Uh, the number is 785-422-5881. The email is tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. The Twitter is tipping underscore pitches. You probably know all this stuff if you're listening all the way at the end of this podcast after we've discussed Taylor Swift for 10 minutes when we promised it would no, go no longer than five. Uh, but it's worth reminding you if you want to get in touch. Another thing that is worth reminding to look out for is new Tipping Pitches merch. If you're a pod listener, you're listening all the way at the end, you're going to get the scoop. You're going to get the first look, the first heads up as to when that merch is coming out. So keep an eye out. We don't have a specific date yet, but make sure you're listening closely if you want some new original merch. Not just Unionize the Miners, although there will be another Unionize the Miners design. Did I leave anything out, Alex? Uh, no, I don't think so. I would just, again, I will underscore the point you made, which is please call in with uh, opinions on the best song off Red and why it's State of Grace. And, uh, you know, we can proceed from there. That's really all I really all I have to say on the matter. I'm not mad at that take. I'm not mad at it. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week. Strength to know that you'll never be happy, and I bet you think about me. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.